Hi there, this is Zoe Durand, mediator, lawyer, and author of Inside Family Law, the book. This is the Inside Family Law podcast, which is for and about those with an interest in the family law process. Hi, I'm Zoe Durand, and you're listening to the Inside Family Law podcast. And I'm here um, working remotely and interviewing remotely with um, Paul Doolan. Paul, can you um, introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, I'm Paul Doolan. I'm chair of the family law section of the Law Council of Australia. I'm also a partner at Barker Doolan Family Lawyers in Sydney and uh, for better or for worse, I'm a family lawyer. <laughs> Thanks very much. And look, it's it's difficult times right now for everyone. And I think that the thing that's really on everyone's mind right now and you know, we're all addicted to it on our mobile phones, reading the news, coronavirus. So it's affecting all areas of life for everyone. Um, in terms of family law, uh, I think we'll start with how people who are separating or, or thinking of separating, how it's affecting them, and then and then maybe we can move to talking about how it's affected the actual family law process and, and court procedures and so forth. But in terms of the people separating and, and what you've seen just in a general sense for your clients, what have you seen, Paul? There's a whole range of problems in different areas, Zoe. I mean, you've got, for example, uh, in parenting cases where there are separated couples where uh, often mum or dad says, well, I've got an elderly relative, uh, I'm concerned about exposure of the children, uh, they might uh, bring uh, the virus with them, I therefore am going to make a decision, which I say is best for the kids, that they not come and spend time with the other parent because of the risk of um, uh, exposure to the virus. And so we're having arrangements about contact and living arrangements broken. Um, mm. And there's arguments starting about those things um, in terms of financial separation. Uh, it's a pretty terrible time. There are a lot of people losing jobs at the moment. We're seeing income going down. We're seeing, therefore, issues about child support levels um, coming into play, uh, issues about the ability to place, pay spousal maintenance coming into play. Uh, people can't afford to maintain two households because of loss of employment, uh, business shutdowns. Values of assets are in free fall in some areas in terms of the share market. Mm. Some of the major stocks have almost halved. The IT sector has been hit very, very hard. No one knows what's going to happen with the real property market, but if you can't do an open home inspection, you're going to have a big problem, I would think. So all those things are, are causing a lot of problems you know, in a practical sense to parties who, even with the best will in the world, want to try to resolve parenting matters or to make arrangements uh, because things are just changing on a daily basis for them. What do you think? I mean, the thing is, right, everything is like we're in new chartered territory. I mean, I don't think there's been, I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime, I think, or the generation above's lifetime in terms of just the, the impact in all areas on everyday life. In terms of that, I mean, obviously every case is different and I'm not certainly not going to ask you to give advice or anything, but just some sort of, if we can feel a bit deeper into that, what you raised about the concerns for the virus to vulnerable people and then therefore that affecting people not wanting to let their child go into the care of the other party. I mean, how does that, is it just the usual law would apply and you'd look at it in that case, or what are your thoughts on that? Uh, it is. If a separated couple have already got a parenting order in place that uh, requires that the children spend a certain amount of time, let's say, with Dad, they live with Mum, they've got to spend you know, five days a fortnight with Dad, or they've got school holidays coming up. Dad is in Queensland and they're supposed to spend uh, half of the holidays with Dad in Queensland and get on a plane to go up there. We're seeing problems now emerging where, um, uh, sorry, I'm going to stop, I've got someone at the door, sorry. That's all right, we can cut this bit uh, out, just, I'll keep recording, right. yeah. Just, just give me one minute, I can Yeah, that's all right, that's fine. My dog started 
barking madly. No, well, now my um, my toddler is having a massive tantrum with Dad downstairs. So, look, I think hopefully this captures just the uh, the up-close noise. I apologise to listeners if from now on you do hear a child crying in the background. This is the reality, though, of coronavirus. I mean, we're all having to work on top of each other at home. I'll express that sunshine. So uh, if the worst thing that happens to me today is that someone delivers a parcel and my turtle starts barking at them, it's been a pretty good day. So, <laughs> so we're, parenting... We're, we're, we're talking about uh, consent orders. So you've got a situation where an order provides that you've got to get on a plane and spend half the holidays with Dad in Queensland. Parties are obliged to comply with the court order and they should do their best efforts to, to, to make that happen. But it may be that a parent has got a reasonable excuse based upon um, health interests as to why that may not occur in that particular case. Um, but, but family lawyers are, and we've seen it in our practice and also anecdotally, coming across a, a large number of cases where one parent is withholding time for children with the other parent, raising coronavirus as like a blanket defence as to why they are doing that. In some cases, it's a very valid thing that's been done. In other cases, it may not be. Mm, so it's just case by case and... I suppose it, the thing is that we'd always say, you know, try and use some common sense. But you know what's difficult, I think, Paul, is that people are panicking, right? And it's like you look at the panic buying and the toilet paper and everything and the stockpiling like soldier ants of food. You know, when people panic, sometimes their ability to think rationally about things is a bit impaired. That's right. What we've seen in the last couple of days is um, two documents issued. One, the Family Law Section of the Law Council issued a, a top 10 guide for parents who are separating in terms of parenting guidelines that might be useful for them. Really, though, at the end of the day, they're all based around two things. One, use common sense, and two, make those common sense decisions based on what's best for your kids. We've also seen in the last 24 hours, the family court and the federal circuit court issued through the Chief Justice a note to parents about um, parenting arrangements in the, the, the time of coronavirus. Again, trying to emphasise the need for parties to respect court orders and parenting plans wherever they can. But also, if they can't make those work because of situations that arise, try and work around them, try and get workarounds that, that, that are best for the kids. But be sensible about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And in terms of property matters, look, I mean, I've already, you know, I were talking about this before, seeing this affecting how parties are negotiating matters or things that might have been agreed in principle before are now off the table because values of things have dropped, like superannuation values might have plummeted. You know, I had one where someone's superannuation had dropped $30,000 in a matter of days. Um, they had a very large amount of super and it was on aggressive. But it, you know what I mean? Like it's it's really affecting confidence in things to be able to negotiate things, if you want a better way to phrase that. And that, that's unfortunately true on just about every level of uh, financial settlement. You've got people who until now had blue chip jobs that were guaranteed income streams, but that job at the moment um, may not be able to produce any income at all. Most small businesses are severely affected by it. Um, business valuations that are done based on maintainable earnings. You know, who would put any faith in the last three years' financial results at the current time because they're not reflective of the economic reality in just any sector? Uh, we're seeing major law firms and accounting firms, the equity partners, they're taking big hits at the moment. Um, we're, we're seeing the, the share prices fall significantly. Uh, real estate yields in commercial properties will We've got uh, Premier Investments coming out of the news today and saying they're, they're stopping paying rent on 900 stores, I think it is, to, to major landlords. There's, there's going to be a flashpoint around these things. It's going to sound significantly in the values attributable to the assets. 
going to affect people's income, and that then goes to things such as the amount of child support they can pay, whether they can pay spousal maintenance, and also issues of Section 75 to adjustments for future needs in property mm. cases are going to take a big hit because whereas once one party may have had a very sound income going forward, that may simply not be the case anymore. Mm, I guess it's hard to predict how long you know, this will, they'll be affected financially, you know, even when the virus, we hopefully get a vaccine and whatever, will things go back to normal? Will we, will are they not? Will, how will industries be affected longer term or, or at all? Like it's it's a bit unknown. Yeah, I'm, I'm now uh, the grand old age of 50 and I've, I've lived through the GFC and when I started practice of the major property crash 20 odd years ago now, what we saw at that point in time were people taking a very significant um, hit to capital, that is that the value of capital assets that they held was significantly affected, but in a lot of those cases, there wasn't also a commensurate hit on income mm. or loss of employment. Mm. What we're seeing at the moment is potentially a double whammy, a whack on capital values and substantial loss of income earning power, and I don't really know how that plays out. Now, hopefully you get to a point where after three, four, six months, the health situation is remedied and people can get back into their, their lives. But what will be the ongoing impacts upon the jobs that people have had to date by what we're going through now? Will jobs morph? Will what we are being forced to do through video conferencing and finding other ways of communicating or getting work done mean that less people are required to do those jobs in the future because we work out that it can mm-hmm. actually be done in a different way? So there, there may be some opportunities there from a business point of view. But it might also have some pretty significant ramifications for um, employment going forward, it seems to me. And I just don't know how long, even when this ends, it's going to take for recovery to take place. We've had a very sound economy for a very significant period of time. Um, Until the health issues started, there was nothing wrong with it at all. And that's the strange thing about this. The GFC occurred because of a fundamental flaw in the economy and in, in certain products in the economy. The real property crash occurred because of a whole series of factors that, that accumulated. Here, there's been no economic factor that precipitated the massive economic downturn that suddenly occurred. So does the economy just simply do a V-line increase, get back to where it was, uh, or does it find some new level? Mm. And what, I mean, is there anything people can do in terms of trying to resolve property matters now, or is it just... We just got, I mean, it's just difficult, basically. I mean, that's, that's, that's what I'm finding. It is more difficult. I think for some people, they are simply no longer in a mindset where they can turn their thought process to resolution because there are yeah. so many other stresses around them. They don't need another one, and they're simply parking uh, the issue of separation uh, or of finalising separation until a couple of months' time because there are more important things for people right now than necessarily resolving on a final basis family law matters, whether it's financial or parenting, and that's absolutely understandable. You've also got people who would really like to resolve them, but aren't because they're predicated or always have been predicated upon the fact that, you know, Joe had a great job and was going to earn a million bucks a year, and Jane was going to be a stay-at-home mum, but Joe's job's gone at the moment, and he's not working, and he's not making any income. Um, so what happens then? Or it's predicated upon the fact that someone's had a, a, a business that's been fantastic for 15 years and had a value of X, but that value uh, no longer may be there because the business is shut down and not operating. And how can you rely upon all the past year results because they don't 
accurately predict what might be a maintained learning for that business going forward. So you've got those kind of issues on a, on a financial front and certainly on the parenting front. How can you necessarily make a long-term plan about parenting um, if you can't at the moment even have a plan for the next six months um, mm. because of the health issues? Mm. So it, uh, and we're also seeing a lot of parents, I think, making a decision just to push uh, family law matters on hold. But they just want to see what happens. Um, you know, it's, I'm not suggesting that people are going back and reconciling, but um, it, it's, just, it's just too hard at the moment for a lot of people. It's too hard. I know what you mean. It's too hard to think about the future. And I think, look, everything's on hold. I saw some kind of post that was going a bit viral around LinkedIn saying, you know, we have cancelled 2020, you know, please come back in 2021. And there, that is that kind of feeling in all areas, I suppose, including the resolution of family law matters. Yeah, yeah I, I look, people still wake up every day and think, you know, this is all a bad dream, and um, uh, but this is the new reality and we've all just got to get through it. And one of the, the really great things that I've found, though, I must say, whether it's dealing with clients or opponents or the court, there is a, a real sense that this is nobody's fault and we are in it together and we're all just trying our very, very best. So mm. I've had a lot of things cancel at short notice. Uh, I've had valuers pull out of doing work because they're scared about inspecting particular properties because of the virus. Um, we've had court hearings adjourned. We've had mediations cancelled. Um, you know, everything that can go wrong has gone wrong. But in none of them have I ever seen anyone get angry uh, mm-hmm. or even frustrated or upset about about it. People have been pretty accepting of it because they recognise that you know at this particular point, which is unprecedented. Um, these things happen, and we've just got to then work out another way to do it. Yeah, so that might that might change. Give it give it a month. Mm. Um, human behaviour being what it is, that we may not be that accepting for that long. But right at the moment, there's been a, a good community response, and a, I must say a great response from the family law profession to trying to help clients and help each other, and and the courts are doing their best, I think, to try and keep the show on the road. So just in terms of court, I mean, how have things have things changed for our listeners, just so you can update everyone? The courts are taking a number of steps at the moment and they're in a state of flux because if we move to a lockdown situation, the whole game changes again, unfortunately. At the moment, what we're seeing is that many face-to-face hearings can obviously no longer take place. Where there are face-to-face hearings, and they're pretty rare, very strict social distancing rules apply as to the number of people who can be in the courtroom at once, the length of time they can be in the courtroom, and cleaning the, the physical act of cleaning that takes place in between each hearing is a really important part of it as well from a health and safety perspective. Mm. We're also seeing the vast majority, if not all, registrars, conferences, conciliation conferences, divorce lists move to telephone hearings um, uh, as a way to promote um, public health and safety and also to ensure that matters are dealt with as best they can. Um, the courts are also starting to trial the use of video uh, appearances. Um, there were one or two matters in Melbourne where that was done uh, this week or earlier this week. Um, both, as I understand it, or at least one of them settled on the first day, so it's a bit hard to, to judge. But, for example, the case was run in the Federal Court of Australia before Justice Knight Parham. Um, uh, where uh, an entire hearing was done on the basis of using the Microsoft Teams uh, software, mm. and that seemed to be very successful. And, and you can go online and, in fact, have a have a look at that and, and how it works. We've got a ten minute excerpt of that just to show how it, how it can be done. Uh, judge in, in in chambers or in court 
parties in their respective offices um, and just making submissions and dealing with witnesses from, from there as well. Um, the other thing that we're seeing is a dislocation in terms of hearing dates. It's necessarily slower when things are done in this way rather than face-to-face hearings. A lot of cases are being adjourned. Um, uh, some part-heard cases that were waiting for the hearing dates, we've got issues around, well, how should a part-heard hearing be resumed? You know, if someone had the benefit of cross-examining witness A on one side in person, uh, but they, their case is closed, the other party only has to be cross-examined by video, by telephone. Issues of kind of procedural fairness arise in that situation. Mm. And lawyers to think through. So there's a lot of work being done to try and move it along. There's a host of other kind of practical problems that family lawyers are coming to terms with. Um, if you want me to run through a couple of examples. Sure, sure. How do you, as a lawyer, sign uh, a mm. client up to an affidavit at the moment? How do you have mm. a face-to-face meeting with a client or any witness and get them to swear um, a financial statement, uh, an affidavit or any other document that requires um, to be deposed on oath? Um, how do you sometimes just get a document to a client uh, for them to sign. They've got a computer or a phone, you can email it to them, but they don't have a printer um, or it's not syncing. How do you get them to sign that document? Uh, you've got mm. a court order that requires supervision of children. The supervisor says, well, this is all well and good when there wasn't coronavirus nowadays. I've got zero interest in being a supervisor anymore. I'm not supervising and no one will. Um, contact stops. Contact centres, how do they keep running during this period of time? So all these kind of practical issues are coming up about should we be allowing electronic signatures on documents? Should the court um, allow parties to file affidavits that are signed but not sworn? Should we... The other problem we've got is with consent orders, you've got, say, two parties to an agreement that's reached. You want both of them to sign the same document. That's actually not a very easy thing to do at the moment. Uh, You've got lawyers working from home. You've got parties in different places. You've got to get the document to party A for them to sign. They've got to send that document to party B to sign. A lot of people don't want to sign or touch paper at the moment. You know, you go to, uh, before this, the cafes got shot down, a lot of cafes wouldn't allow you to hand over paper notes anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a health risk even about the exchange of papers. Courts are adopting the same thing. When there are face-to-face hearings, you can no longer in the family and federal circuit court tender documents in court. It's all got to be electronic. So the practical aspect of even getting two parties to sign the same document is difficult. So through the family law section, we've we've made a proposal to the courts, which hopefully they'll take up, about the use of electronic signatures, um, about allowing documents to be signed by one party only in terms of that. So a party to sign an affidavit, but not to swear it, later to affirm it's true in a court event, um, to allow parties to exchange counterparts of consent orders rather than having to sign the same document. The whole idea being, let's keep people moving as much as we can, let's help them get to a resolution, let's help them get a hearing if they urgently need a hearing, but we need to think of new ways of doing old problems. Yeah, and I think, you know what I think is interesting, I wonder how much, when all this passes and, you know, we can kind of resume normal or our new normal life again, I wonder how much of this sort of will remain in that maybe people will do more things remotely or electronically or there'll be more of an uptake of electronic means of communication with the court you know like some of it I don't think will necessarily it's like we were doing a we've gone to b we'll just go straight back to a at the end of this it might some of it might kind of remain because people go that actually worked okay so now we're used to that new normal we'll keep some of that going 
I think that's absolutely right. And when you think about the costs involved, I'll give you an example. I did a hearing in a matter in Brisbane yesterday before Justice, or I won't say which judge it was, um, family law matter. Uh, involved senior counsel from the uh, Brisbane and Sydney bar involved in it. It was an interlocutory matter in a financial case. Ordinarily, we'd be all up in Brisbane for that hearing. Instead, it was done by telephone. The judge was in uh, court in Brisbane. Uh, the Brisbane barrister, the silk I was instructing out there, I was sitting in my office in, sorry, in my home office in, in Sydney. Uh, the Brisbane barrister was in his chambers in Brisbane. Uh, the barrister for the wife, as far as I could work out, was on a farm somewhere. Uh, his uh, instructing solicitor was in a home office. We all defeated by telephone. There were a few glitches along the way because the system was overloaded, but we got through it. It was done in an hour and a half. It was done the same length of time that would ordinarily be done. Everything was lodged with the judge electronically. The documents people wanted to tender or rely upon were electronically sent to the judge beforehand. The parties didn't have to pay for the cost of lawyers travelling from um, Sydney to Brisbane for that particular hearing. So this is substantial cost saving to the clients by the way it was done. Um, I think everyone in terms of the barristers would have preferred that they could have been in, in, in court. Um, mm. Uh, I mean, you get a sense when you see somebody and, and you can kind of relate to them. It's different. Like, let's be honest, it is different. It's different. On, on, on telephone, you, you've got no idea whether the judge, so to speak, is, is happy or sad or upset or whatever it might be, uh, unless they say so. So you lose that physical touch. Certainly with video hearings, we'll have that benefit of being able to see the judge. Uh, but, you know, overall, it was a good experience for everybody. It got done quickly. It got done inexpensively. Um, we'll have a decision you know, hopefully in a few weeks on it. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I think I think that this will kind of force us all to take take up technology more. I mean, I know for me, I've had to set up Zoom and Skype, which I should have really set up ages ago, but guilty as charged, I hadn't set them up, and it's forcing us to sort of use technology more. Um, in terms of, look, and I have seen this race a little bit in the media, family violence, there's been some concerns about that escalating. Do you have any thoughts about that? What we've seen, England... Um, is ahead of us in the progress of the virus at the moment in the sense that they're probably a month or six weeks ahead of where we are in terms of the tracking of the, uh, or the progression of the virus through the community. What the English courts have been communicating to their Australian counterparts is they have seen a spike in family violence cases, that you know, the situation of lock-in um, and the close proximity is giving rise to um, you know, incidents between domestic partners that are occurring that's going to be uh, undoubtedly a problem and that's going to flow through to the, uh, the state and territory police around Australia. You've got to deal with it in the first instance. But it's also going to then have an effect in family law, obviously, where um, you know, family violence is a very relevant factor uh, in decisions about children and it can also be a relevant factor in some cases in financial matters as well. Mm. So um, moving on to something else, and look, um, I know we were originally going to talk about this, but I think you and I booked this before Corona really hit. Um, I would like to ask and sort of pick your brains there while I have the benefit of speaking with you, Paul. Do you have thoughts at all about where we're heading with, I mean, it might all have shifted a bit now with everything that's going on, family law reform, inquiries, the bigger picture in family law and all the shifts that are happening there, you know, in general or, or now after Corona? It's funny, going back two weeks, there were three main ticket items, or maybe a little bit longer than that. We had the uh, the family law inquiry being conducted by the Joint Select Committee of the Australian Commonwealth Parliament. We had the Australian Law Reform Commission final report into family law 
delivered last year to the federal government, but which they haven't responded to at all. Mm. And we've got the merger bills, which the government resurrected late last year, which are going to the uh, Senate Legal and Constitutional Affairs Committee for review and scrutiny, and they're reporting by, not before, or um, by November of this year. Now, each of those, the, the public inquiry hitting, uh, hearings have been suspended at the moment. Um, they're going to be resumed. Uh, on behalf of the, the Law Council, I appear that um, the public inquiry about uh, two weeks ago held here in Sydney, uh, chaired by uh, Mr Kevin Andrews um, and uh, one of the deputies is um, Senator Pauline Hanson. Mm. Uh, and there are a number of other senators and members of the, the lower house who are there um, for the hearing. Um, yeah, that's got a very broad set of terms of reference into the entirety of the Australian legal system. Um, but we've got this. Uh, we've got the federal government trying to force upon us the, the merger of the, um, the family court into the federal circuit court, uh, effectively, uh, and what we think is really the abolition of the family court. Mm. Um, and it's being done in a way which doesn't really pay heed to uh, or where the government hasn't even responded to the Australian Law Reform Commission report. Um, the merger was predicated upon a report by an accounting firm which uh, allegedly gave rise to economic benefits and rationales as to why the merger should take place, which we don't accept uh, at all as being accurate. But even if they were, one of the big cost savings they saw was to get rid of the, the full court of the family court and, and, and hive all appeals off to the federal court of Australia. Now, the government's abandoned that particular idea in the, in the 2019 version of the bill. So one of their great cost savings initiatives and how they get more cases through the court being having the appeals done in the federal court and not in the family court is gone. So seemingly one of the big economic reasons for the, for the merger is gone as well, but, but still they want to push on with it. It's hard to understand what the rationale for that really is. Mm. Any, any Anything else in terms of the overall picture of family law? Do you think it will change with corona or is it still going to just, you know, are we has, has there been any shifts there? I'm not sure if people are... We, we, I think we're not far enough into it to really know. Uh, I think you're right that what we are going to see is uh, there's not going to be an immediate return to the practices that went on before. Now, measures are going to be introduced now, some of them in haste um, for good reason, um, and some of them might stay longer than we expect. Um, some of the relaxations of the rules might stick around a bit longer than we thought. Um, these may not be temporary measures, they may be permanent things because either they work or because they're, they're found to be effective. So I think that's one of the unexpected things that's going to come from it all is that the way we practice will, will change. Um, I think also the use of technology. Uh, this is really fast-forwarding the courts, especially the use of technology. You know, the family court hasn't, uh, except for appeals, regularly used video links, for example, for, for counsel interstate. Uh, if they can make it work and make it work efficiently and reasonably cheaply by use of technology, I think we're going to see more and more technology used in the courts that allows greater flexibility. It cost saves for parties. If that can be made to work, then I think that's going to be a lasting good thing that comes out of all of this, and, and hopefully some good things do come out of it. Um, will we see changes in human behaviour because of the situation? One of the great problems in family law is that you can have all the laws in the world regulate lawyers and should regulate lawyers. Courts have got laws that they apply, but ultimately what we're doing is trying to deal with human emotion and people have got a habit of acting as people want to do. And, you know, mm. um, when the 
relationships break down. Uh, people act very strangely at times. You know, maybe people will, in the context of the current health crisis we're going through, concentrate a little bit less about themselves and a little bit more about what's best for their kids. Mm. Amy, can I ask one? Uh, well, I've got to ask. You know, this is me. I've got to ask one controversial question. Um, Pauline Hanson and her role in the inquiry. Do you have any comments on that? Uh, no, skip. <laughs> you can skip. I'll edit this out. I'll, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a straight bad answer. Um, Senator Hanson um, has been elected by the people of Queensland as a senator. She's got a job to do. Uh, I don't agree with uh, a lot of what Senator Hanson says. In fact, I've said that to her in meetings that I've had with Senator Hanson. I've met with her three or four times now, I think. Um, that there are a lot of things we don't uh, agree about at all, particularly about, her, about the Family Law Act and some changes she wants made to it. There are some things that I think that she does well. She um, is a great supporter of legal aid, um, and I think uh, her uh, support for the legal aid system uh, is tremendous. Uh, she's a great supporter of the use of registrars in the Family Court and Federal Circuit Court and money being spent on that. And uh, I think that position uh, is a very good one of hers. Um, she's also been interested in family law. Um, we don't share the same interests, uh, but it is a topic of interest for her, and she's brought a, lot, a large spotlight to the area. Uh, I disagree with just about everything she, she says about parenting matters and family violence. In fact, I disagree with all of it, I think. And I said that to her, but uh, I respect her interest in the fact she's a senator elected by the people. Okay, fantastic. And look, just very briefly, I guess the five minute version of. Um or just some of the highlights of, if you're willing to share, do you have thoughts about family law reform? I guess more broadly, if we can just pause Corona for a second, and um, do you have thoughts that, you know, and every practitioner sees things differently, so it's not necessarily a right or wrong kind of answer. But what are your thoughts about family law reform and what you think might be helpful for lawyers and clients, parties? Uh, I think the biggest change that could usefully be done coming out of the Australian Law Reform Commission um, is probably... Uh, two things. One is uh, the uh, removal of the trigger provisions um, where if orders are made about equal shared parental responsibility, judges are then required to give consideration to equal time or substantial and significant time. Um, those uh, provisions are unnecessary. They're productive of complete mis misunderstanding in, in the community um, where people seem to think to use the old parlance that they're entitled to joint custody. Uh, because of the equal shared parental responsibility mm -hmm. provisions. Um, and I think it also forces judges on an interim basis to write and deliver longer judgments than they need to and go into unnecessary detail, which slows the whole system down. So I think if the recommendations about the repeal of those from the Australian Law Reform Commission were taken up, that would be a great thing for the community and for the courts. Um, secondly, the, the Family Law Act is a complete mess of a bit of legislation. It's been put together over 40 years in the sense of you know, the numbering is all over the place. The provisions are difficult to follow. They're not all in a, in a cohesive or comprehensive sense of where they should be. A rewrite of the Act to simplify it in terms of at least the numbering and the language used in some parts would, I think, benefit practitioners and also help the clients. So there are so many self-represented litigants who go through the system some plain language and simplified versions of some provisions would be a great benefit to the community as well. And look, unfortunately, after everything that we're going through in the financial hit, there might be more self-represented litigants in the next year or two or three even. Who knows? Yeah, I think if you ask any judge for all the um, criticisms made by the parliamentary committee about legal costs, 
um, there's not enough emphasis given or recognition given of the job that lawyers do to help parties settle matters. Mm. There were um, a very large number of applications for consent orders filed in the Family Court of Australia last year. The statistical analysis uh, analysis that shows that 86% of those matters where applications for consent orders were filed, the parties were represented by uh, lawyers on both occasions or at least uh, lawyers were acting for one of the parties involved. So lawyers play a huge role in helping people mm. to resolve matters. If you ask any judge, what would they prefer? Would they prefer to have two self-represented litigants in court uh, or would they prefer to have parties where there are lawyers appearing for them? I think invariably, in fact, if not always, they would say, I'd prefer to have lawyers to assist me and to assist the court sure. to, to understand what the evidence is, to make submissions that are in accordance with the law and to move the matter quickly through the system. Self-represented litigants, you know, they're entitled to be self-represented, but sometimes they're self-represented because they can't afford to because of the country's legal aid. Um, and if there was greater legal aid and people had more access to lawyers, it would result in savings to the community. There's false economy out there by the government says, let's cut legal aid and save some money. It might cut your bottom line on the legal aid budget, but what it does is blow the courts out of the water in terms of their ability to deal with cases because there are more and more self-represented litigants. So they're not saving money. They're causing themselves a bigger problem. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective, and it's, it's very true. One thing I that interests me is that, you know, because I used to work at Legal Aid, um, you know, to be eligible for Legal Aid, you know, you have to be on really very small. I mean, I, I haven't worked there for a while, so I'm not across exactly where where it is, but you'd have to be on an extremely, well, either unemployed or on extremely low income. The problem is there's a lot of people that, you know, they might not be eligible for Legal Aid, but they really can't properly afford to sort of have a lawyer at least Maybe they can get some initial advice, and I certainly suggest that they should do that at least, but they can't afford to have a lawyer run their matter for, for several years because they might be on, I don't know, some, some $60,000, $78,000. You'd struggle, I think, to, to pay legal fees on top of that. So I think there's a lot of people that fall in that gap. Do you, do you know what I mean? Between legal aid and then being able to afford a lawyer properly to run the matter, and I think that's an area of interest in terms of what, what do we do with those people. There is that um that middle part of Australia um, where you're either not rich enough or poor enough to receive a private lawyer or to have a legally added lawyer. One of the questions that I think those who consider the Australian Law Reform Commission report need to give consideration to is who, who are we aiming these reforms at? Who are we trying to help? Um, are they trying to develop a system of family law that is really just helping people who don't have a lawyer at all to, to better work for the system? Are they trying to um, introduce new philosophies to the Act? Because it, it's a really interesting point. If, if there's a, such a large number of people who don't have lawyers, where should the law reform therefore be targeted um, in terms of, um, uh, is that why the Law Reform Commission talks about presumptions being in place, the idea that that presumption should apply in some parenting, or, sorry, rather in financial cases, as a starting point of what outcome should be because that would help people who don't have a lawyer to understand what a likely outcome would be. But for my part, I think presumptions are dangerous and preferred um, to a far greater degree the uh, discretionary system that we've got about financial adjustment. I think it's a much fairer, more just and more equitable system of law than having presumptions that are in place. But you can understand perhaps that where some of this law reform is being driven by is we've got all these self-represented litigants if we had presumptions, wouldn't it make it easier for them to come to a resolution? 
Okay. Um, and any last thoughts for everyone going through coronavirus, clients, parties, and, and lawyers? Any any thoughts from you about how we can all get through this? Ah, <laughs> uh, very difficult question. Probably the hardest one so far. Uh, I think people have got to take a, a long-term view of things, um, and that's both for, for clients and for, for lawyers. Um, for, for clients, they've got to be sensible about the approach that they take. For some, the right decision is not to move at all and just to fit it out um, to protect their families and to um, come back to resolving matters uh, as and when they can in the future. Um, for lawyers, it's about making sure we're still able to um, service our clients. It's about helping clients to understand that this is hopefully just a temporary situation and they need to not take advantage of it in any way, um, mm. particularly in parenting cases, that people should be sensible about it. Um, and uh, I, I think really to help the courts. The courts have got a really difficult job to do at the moment and mm. everything we can do to help registrars, judges, um, the, the, the security officers of the court have got an important job to do at the moment, the cleaners of the court, everything we can do in a practical sense if we set, set foot in that courtroom or in those court premises or if we're on the phone to them, is to remember that they're doing a really difficult job at a very difficult time. They're doing mm. it to help our clients and, and us and everything we can do to assist the court in that process has got to help us and most importantly help our, our clients and their children. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, look, um, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today, obviously remotely. We've had a few interruptions and if there's background noises in the final edit of this, I do apologise, but we are in the new normal where the virtual is now the real and everything's being done remotely and by phone and, and electronically. Thank you very much, Paul. Thanks very much. So thank you for listening in to the Inside Family Law podcast. I hope you found today's episode interesting. And I hope that it is just the beginning of the conversation and that you can continue to think about and talk about the issues that were raised today with your friends and your colleagues. Till next time, if you want to be in touch with me about the podcast today or anything else family law related, then please um, be in touch with me. My website is www.mediationanswers.com.au. Bye for now. Thank you.